Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Toby, And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling magical. Oh, and that me, is, me too. Are you? Yeah, yes. we are in the presence of greatness. And today feels like it's been a long time coming because it's one of the guests we've wanted for so long. Mm-hmm. And um, is actually, for me, in the words of Coldplay, taking it back to the start, because this is where my journey in art began with this guest. In the early 2000s, my boyfriend, Dan Theo, at the time, his best friend, Max Moogler, worked in a gallery in East London, um, very close to Bethnal Green. And I remember vividly getting on the tube from northwest London, going all the way down to Bethnal Green and making the pilgrimage to this gallery. And it literally changed my life. The first time I walked through the doors, you had to like ring a buzzer and it wouldn't, mm. you couldn't just like walk in. You had to like ring a buzzer and wait for someone to welcome you. Mm. And then they'd come and like open the door for you. And then you'd go inside and it was like a beautiful space and I think it was just before it changed name to our guest's actual name back then it was called Interim Art and I saw some incredible incredible shows and it literally just changed my life to the point where I wanted to become a gallerist you know after many many years of visiting I always used to feel incredibly magical incredibly sort of inspired and it was a place to learn and a place for community because at the openings there used to be this kind of outdoor space and everyone would have beers and like hang out and I got to make loads of friends like Sarah Jones the artist and Rebecca Warren and Wolfgang Tillmans and just loads Mm. of amazing artists would gather and it was the first place I began to realize that you really could go to an opening and you could just be yourself and people would welcome you. There was no kind of hierarchy or bullshit or like any kind of like meanness. It was just a very open sort of friendly space. And yeah, it sort of changed my life. And I can't believe we're going to interview her because I love her so much. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Maureen, Maureen Paley. Hi, Maureen. Uh-huh. Hello. Hello. Hi, Russell. Hi, Robert. Hello. Wonderful to be here, finally, and to speak with you both. Where where, where are you today? I'm in Hove, and I'm in that location for the summer. But um, I'm always very, very close to East London in my heart. But yes, I'm by the seaside. Rob was just talking about, you know, going to the gallery and buzzing the bell. And I had the same experience when discovering your space. And I, I would say it is quite intimidating. That does add to the, the getting over the threshold of entering a gallery. But once you are opened at the door is when I first met Oliver 
Oliver Evans is, is one of the directors now with you who's incredible and he would sort of welcome you in and then give you a tour and it's, it becomes very bespoke like a bespoke experience it's like it's tailored to you as you enter the door and that that original space on Herald Street this is in, in East London it was a magical space and the, the exhibitions that I Rob was saying that I've seen there as well have been you know defining for my taste or my experience of what art is what London art can be international art uh, there's a very queer aesthetic I always found that I was really leaning into and the space, I mean, how did you know or what did you know that you wanted to achieve when you opened that space? And, and what was this bell thing? Why didn't you have a system where people could just walk in? Well, I think um, that actually came as a little bit of a hangover from my original space. Because when I first opened, which was in 1984, I was a project space and I was actually um, running out of a terraced, a Victorian terraced house in sort of near to London fields and for sort of just kind of in a community way and kind of in a welcoming way, we began there and we would always answer the door and somehow felt that people rang a bell to kind of gain entry. It was a, it was a bit of a private thing, but at the same time it was open to the public and it, it had, it had public days. And I guess, that worked and we just never questioned it. So we continued doing it as a kind of East End procedure. <laughs> and then that just kind of was how, how, how it happened. Um, and I don't think we even, until I'm hearing you speaking about it, I don't think we even questioned it. It was just the way we did it. Mm. I think I think I always used to find it really exciting because you you'd have yeah. that weight outside yeah, and then, and then once you get let in yeah. it's sort it's sort of defined that this space was different and I think that's mm. that's what art can be it can be a a place of transformation of like you know taking your mind and your 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 soul somewhere else and it was specifically your gallery that that made me feel that like a lot of the west end galleries it was super commercial and often they'd be quite unfriendly as well, but your space was always like, everyone was so polite and so lovely. And like, um, yeah, even your office with the glass door. And I always remember you sitting in there. It was ne You could always knock on that door and say hi to you. And you would like open up the, you know, your bookcases and give books away. And like, you know, you, you were really keen on um, encouraging people to be inspired by new art. Well, I think that um, we often talked about how it was somewhat of a TARDIS, you know, to behind the door <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, totally. when one entered um, the original space. But then it was interesting that in Herald Street, too, we always talked about it being both a space, which was, you know, a gallery. But I was always very interested in the idea of a reading room and a lab. So we had this idea that a lot of experimentation was going on amongst the artists and we were welcoming a public that might not be fully aware of their work. So we had a kind of sense or I had a sense that I imparted to my the people working with me and to the artists themselves that we would be like a, a, a point for information to be kind of gained. And um, I think that that was something um, very special, very important to me. And I was thinking about this because knowing I was going to be speaking to you both, I was kind of looking back over all the years I've known some of the artists that are most associated with the space and realizing that, you know, I met Wolfgang Tillmans when he was, you know, so young and I met him around 1988, 89. I didn't give him his first solo show till 1993, but um, I had met him in Hamburg first, 
And then he had come to study at Bournemouth College. We kept contact all the way through. And um, I showed him in the unfair in Cologne in 1992. And I showed Lutz and Alex um, sitting in the trees, which is now a very iconic work. So I was the first to show that as an inkjet in that fair, which was the unfair, so not quite a fair. And um, then we did a solo show in 1993, as did Daniel Buchholz just before me. And um, I found it really interesting to look back, thinking that I was going to speak to you both, because that was such an important moment for me. Um, and the gallery was evolving as in a project space way just before that. So from 84 till the point where I was showing him or showing Gillian Waring, who I also met in 1993 and showed in 94 in, in that first space. I was going to say, you, so you considered it a temporary space, right? So you had your space in your house for like one or two years you were planning and then you had intern art and you thought that would be for two years? Well, a couple of years, yes. I think that was the kind of the belief. And then it grew. And somehow, I was able to show a lot of work that was international very, very early on. And the inspiration for that space came from a visit I made, because I used to go back and forth. I came originally from New York, as you know. And um, I used to visit New York. And I was very inspired myself by galleries in the Lower East Side of New York that had been set up by people who were similar in age to me. And they were doing fantastic shows. And I wanted to bring some of that energy back to the East End of London. And I think the approach, which again, you know, you're talking about, Rob, um, and Russell, about coming into the gallery and feeling welcome. When I went into those spaces, I really got that feeling. And often somebody did greet you at the door. And they were shop fronts and also not, not huge, a lot of the spaces. They were just very, very edgy. And um, that gave me a lot of courage to open. What was it about London? So being from New York and you're inspired by the Lower East Side galleries, but you suddenly go, well, I want to bring all this and take it to the East End of London. What, what was the aesthetic of the UK that it was giving you? Well, you know, I stayed in the UK um, after graduating from the Royal College of Art. And I think that I was drawn to the whole scene that was sort of surrounding me at the time. So I really found that the music um, situation in in London and a lot of the punk music, a lot of the people who were recording, um, I was very um, intrigued by people like John Peel who were giving opportunities to musicians where they were playing songs on the radio and then those songs were somehow syndicated worldwide like very quickly because of, you know, his efforts and his, his kind of instinct and vision. And I think because I was being kind of taken up and running around at clubs and going out in London, London was my home. And I really felt that if I could bring some of this art activity into the situation, it would kind of, in a way, complete something and maybe continue something that I had begun in terms of living in a place that appealed to me so much. I mean, I love London. I love New York, but I love London. Was you a punk? Well, (laughs) I wouldn't go so far, (laughs) but I was certainly like um, going out to all the gigs. I was 
very drawn to the scene. So I was, I was, I was going out everywhere and meeting everyone. And I was actually thinking about this the other day because people who are associated much more heavily with, with being punks are people who are friends of mine to this day. So they, they know I was there. <laughs> so cool. With the punk music, was there an art aesthetic at the same time? I'm picturing things like uh, Sid Vicious and the posters you sort of saw for that time. W- was there a movement that you could feel at that time alongside? Well, I think what it was was that I was at the Royal College of Art and I was there from 78 to 80, which brought me very close to King's Road. So I could kind of wander down there and go to Boy and go to, you know, Vivian Westwood's um, and, and Malcolm McLaren's shop, which kept changing names and, you know, went from kind of into various transitions. And um, I think that it wasn't so much like I was trying to, in a way, introduce that aesthetic. Mm. It was more that I was really aware of um, the art from New York from the 70s and also looking at art that was emerging in the 80s. And I felt that I could provide a role in translating some of that into a kind of a London situation. And I think that's an important thing in a way for me because I wasn't looking at it only that I would at that time, and it's changed now, but I wasn't only looking at it that I would um, only represent and present work from the UK. Mm -hmm. I was always looking at art that was being created everywhere. I was looking quite a lot in the States. I was looking in Germany. And there was a sort of sense when I got started that I wanted to have, uh, if one could use this word, like an international presence. So my viewpoint was international. It was like, think local and act global. Think local, act global. I love that. That's a mantra. That's amazing. When you were 10, I've read that you were asked by your art teacher in your art class to critique everyone else's work. And you look back on that moment as being something that that you realized that they saw something in you, which you hadn't realized about yourself yet. But you know that that was there from the start. But then when you went to do the Royal College of Art, you went there yourself to train as a photographer. Is that right? Well, the thing that was very interesting is that the art that I was most drawn to, and even to this day, was conceptual work. And a lot of the conceptual work that I was interested in um, used the camera. So the camera was like part of like their way of documenting and locating you know, the art that they were engaged in. So a lot of the artists that I had looked at through that period were... Um, sometimes lens-based, though though very much, you know, guided by by concept. So when I went to the Royal College and I was applying to go there, I think they felt that I'd be best in the photography department, even though my interests were much, much broader. So yes, I went to the photography department at the Royal College of Art and then proceeded to look at all sorts of things. And what brought me to the East End was reading, actually, in a stamp on the work of Gilbert and George, that they lived in Fournier Street. 
And I decided I needed, as a young art student, to make a pilgrimage to their house. So I went, and you can imagine, I think, Rob, you really would get this. I mean, Fournier Street was considered so far away. So when both of you were making pilgrimages to my gallery, I was going to this dusty street in Spitalfields to look at this house. And it was somehow then that I fell in love with the East End and thought maybe I can look around and find some property nearby. And the property I found, actually, um, I was led to um, through going to Covent Garden. Again, these are all these kind of student forays um, to find a place where I could have both studio and home. And I went to what was then the Acme Gallery. And the Acme Gallery was in Shelton Street, and they were very progressive, and they were doing a lot of experimental work. And I was very drawn to what they were doing. And someone told me, if you go upstairs, you can tell them you're looking for a property. They might find you one. And then luckily, they did. And that was where the gallery then got located. So all of this is part of like a kind of London sojourn and a London kind of, um, yeah, like London unfolding in a very particular way. It feels like a more romantic time because you mentioned Gilbert and George. They used to write their address on their artworks. So anyone who saw their artwork, like you said, you were able to make a pilgrimage outside their house, knock on their door. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. opened your house to the public. You allowed people into your live-work environment and to experience art, but then, you know, your bedroom is upstairs, I'm sure, and and your belongings. It's like, it feels like that was a time which doesn't exist now. Did it feel more kind of, I I guess... I'm not, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't want to sound so nostalgic for it Mm. or, or about it, because in actual fact, I think people now still create project spaces and there are younger artists who are doing things in their front room and creating things in studios where they have open studios. Um, I think that the experimental end of art and the way that art um, evolves um, often is um, allowing that DIY element to still be alive. And I know what you're saying. I think things have gone into another realm. It can appear far more corporate now. It can appear that a lot of this has been forgotten. But I do see it that um, there are people who are still setting up and and doing things in Margate, doing things in New York on the Lower East Side, doing things in London and South London, where they are actually um, being vulnerable. Yeah, totally. And I actually think it's interesting. I always remember talking to Margot Heller about you, who um, is the head of the South London Gallery and has been for a long time now. And she used to make a pilgrimage to your space, just like I did. And we actually became friends, bonding over the idea that we both loved Maureen Paley. And then collectors like Helen Helen um, Randag, Helen Thorpe, like she would also, you know, make the pilgrimage to you. And it sort of became this thing, like this idea of the journey. And I think when Carl Friedman first said to me about moving to Margate, I was like, well, actually, it could be possible because there is something magic isn't there about about people having to make that kind of journey i think there's a commitment involved it's a destination and a, a passion yes. involved that when mm-hmm. they arrive that you know it's a kind of magical thing well i think 
that energy and then also you communicating that to others means that if you create a destination, people find their way to that destination. Yes. That's also happened like creating Morena de Luna mm. down in Hove. I had vowed that I'd never open you know, something outside of London. It wasn't necessary for me to do so. so actually, I think inspired by Margate, but understanding that I had a locational connection to Hove, I opened and it's kind of been very interesting. I mean, the shows that we've done here have been very well tended. It's kind of, it's, it's run in a quite an idiosyncratic way, but I actually quite like that. I looked at galleries in the um, Hamptons outside of New York mm -hmm. and sort of felt that one could, you know, attempt to do something. And I think that sense that you can make things possible and it's for love of the art, but also it's for like a kind of immediacy, like a belief in, the, in, in what could be possible. I also feel like really strongly that if you think about your space in Hove, which is obviously right next to Brighton, it's quite easy to get to from London, but also it provides such a different experience for the artists themselves. And Russell and I, I remember we flew back from New York, I think it was before the pandemic, when Rebecca Warren had a solo show with you there in Brighton. Mm -hmm. And I remember yeah. being a bit confused when we turned up because I was like, "Is it? it's going to be a really small space for Rebecca. Like, you know, she makes these monumental giant sculptures. And then when we arrived there, it kind of all clicked because I was like, oh, I see. Like, you know, you're giving the artist an opportunity to be an artist, you know, and explore a different space. Yes. And her show, Souls, was one of our, you know, special. We loved having that there. I mean, as you know, you know, we gave Rebecca, um, a well, her first show with the gallery was in 2000, which mm. was The Agony and the Ecstasy. And that was when she first introduced, like, her works in clay in the gallery space. Um, she went on to do, like, in 2003, she went on to do She. She's done very, very iconic work for the gallery and with the gallery. And um, I was thinking about this a lot because because I was in Vienna and very, very excited this July to um, see that she has just opened a show at the Belvedere 21, mm. which is called The Now Voyager. And looking at those bronzes, which are just so accomplished, so special, yeah. it felt very important that we also had done something at Marina de Luna that she felt had in some way um, inspired the next step that she has taken now in Vienna. So I think that um, that show and the people who came to, to be at the opening, so you both being there and so many of the people that she was so close to actually enjoying their time in Brighton for her um, and, and being with her in Hove, um, we didn't feel that it was any less attended. And we also have felt that it was very appreciated once people arrived and yes. again had that TARDIS experience yeah. of not knowing what to expect and then coming through the the door and realizing that something had occurred, something like very significant had been made. Is there a bell welcoming there as well? Have you carried that through? <laughs> we well, <laughs> I, we do. <laughs> we do. I guess it just must be something that we do. <laughs> it's your trademark, absolutely. Yeah. So you met Rebecca Warren, who me and Rob are dear friends with, and is again one of our absolute art heroes. You met her after you did a talk at her art school, right? Yes. Well, you know, I was also looking back and just trying to piece together like where I had, you know, come across her first and, you know, what I was thinking about. In 1997, 
I had seen a show at the Haywood, right, which was called uh, Material Culture, um, and it was sculpture from the 1980s and 90s. And she had a vitrine piece that was in that show, which was called Every Aspect of Bitch Magic. Yes. And I love this piece. So I wrote her name down. You didn't have iPhones in those days. <laughs> I couldn't take a picture and I couldn't photograph the caption. Oh, yeah. But I thought she seemed very interesting. So... Then, yes, I, I, I did sort of meet her at her, her art college, but I did also see something that she had done in 1999 in a show that Glenn Brown had curated at the Approach Gallery. And um, it was called, the show, it was a group show, and it was called It's a Curse, It's a Burden. And in that show, again, a very iconic work was presented, which was her Helmet Crumb work. And I remember looking at this clay work and thinking, oh, my God, I love this work so much. This is just genius. I have to show this person. So we met. And at the time, I remember her saying to me, almost shyly and a bit concerned that I might find it awkward, but I didn't at all. Given my origins, I have to say I'm very open to all sorts of possibilities in terms of what artists can do and not do. So she said, I don't have a studio, but she met me at St. John restaurant in the bar and showed me some Polaroids of some clay work that she was making and might like to show. And that was it. So we did our show, which was the agony and the ecstasy in 2000. And I presented many of those works. And she just went away and continued to work on them. They were very important, very, very significant work. And again, she surprised a lot of people who knew her conceptual earlier works and were interested in her as, you know, an artist that was extremely broad in her background. But that too interested me because my background was conceptual work and looking at a range of work. Um, because when I was a student at Sarah Lawrence and then later on at Brown University, we were, you know, going into New York quite a bit to look at the art was, that was being shown at the time. So we were looking at Donald Judd, we were looking at Saul LeWitt, I was looking at, um, you know, variety of, of, of things. Um, there was a lot of work that really, Ava Hess was very influential for me. Um, there were things that were quite moving to see in both galleries and in museums. And I was thinking about it now, because, you know, when you were talking about the queer aesthetic, Russell, and mm. like things that I might not have seen at the time, I'm interested that I'm now going back into that period and revisiting things. So I didn't see Paul Tech then, but thinking about him now. Yes. And I didn't see Peter Hujar then, but thinking about him now. So people that were overlooked in that time are people that I'm being able to resurface in this time. But I think that my whole orientation um, really helped me to understand Rebecca's conceptual thinking, which is very important to me. It feels like, so this was in 2000 uh, that mm -hmm. you had the Agony and the Ecstasy, and we were mm -hmm. talking about Wolfgang Tillmans, we were talking about Julian Waring, and these are artists that you have connected with at the very genesis beginning of their careers really and you have nurtured and mm -hmm. worked alongside them and supported and encouraged and it feels like that is a real unique asset that you have this loyalty that these artists have had to you and that you've had to them 
And what what would you put that down to for yourself that this these relationships, these marriages, I guess, you've had with these artists for throughout their whole career? What 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 is the fundamentals of that for you? Well, I've been thinking a lot about that because I thought you might mention it, and mm. I was thinking about how things evolve. I suppose that there are certain well. There's, there's my love of art. So I think that's the first. And then the second is that when I have picked people to work with, you know, not all relationships last as long as these have. But I do feel that um, I picked these people on the basis that they spoke to something very deep inside of me and that I really felt a, a very uh, intense connection to. One of the other things is that we are all continuously evolving, as you know, and, you know, you as as people who are looking at art, collecting art, thinking about art, showing art, all of those things, curating all the things you do, these are all things I love too. So in a way, it's not just that you decide you want to show something simply to show it. It's also being immersed in the whole practice, really thinking about what it is that these artists are engaged in. And I think um, it was like beginning a dialogue. And it was actually in some ways like a true marriage of spirits. So there's a kind of sense of like belief in what this person was bringing to the world. And that thing that they were bringing to the world was something that was aligned with my thinking. And I was thinking about this being a, quite a benchmark year because um, Gillian Waring just had a solo show, you know, that was Gillian Waring wearing masks at the Guggenheim. Wolfgang is about to open a solo show this September coming at Museum of Modern Art. And we're extremely excited about that, to look without fear. And then Rebecca, as we mentioned, you know, is, is at the Belvedere 21. And there it goes on, you know. I was actually thinking about someone like Hannah Starkey, who I met in 1997, who graduated from the Royal College of Art, who I still work with. And she was just given a Freelands Award um, from the Freelands Foundation and is going to open this September a huge solo show at the Hepworth Wakefield. Mm. So there's a lot of activity, you know. And I was thinking, too, because of Rob, of Anne Hardy, and thinking, how she's been given a Chinati residency that's going to come up this autumn and she's going to go there but she's also been nominated for the Mario Mertz award in Torino so when you think of picking people and I've there's so many artists that are wonderful in the gallery that I am not mentioning who've been honored Lawrence Abu Hamdan being one of them mm -hmm. who also has been in the Toronto Biennale is currently in, in in the Berlin Biennale all these things are part of evolution revolution and thinking behind the ethos of the gallery so it's not just about selling the work which of course you know we are delighted to place with great collectors and with museums um, but it's also about um, being very close to the making of the work and maybe because i actually was trained not only in art history but in art practice 
I actually feel very close to the installation and making side of things. Mm. I really love the installation phase. Even at fairs, I am present doing that because it means something to me. It's not just something that, you know, and I love doing it with Oliver Evans, my director, who you mentioned, who is quite wonderful. So the curatorial side is incredibly important. Like prior to the gallery and during the the starting of the your your own space, you were doing outside curation. You did a lot of shows. You've um, done shows at Camden Art Centre, done Leeds Art Gallery, uh, the Henry Moore Sculpture Park, where you put like YBA young British artists into that exhibition. So when it comes to your own space, do you see that as a an ongoing curatorial project and and the installations? It's it, that's very important to you as well as the very art you show, so. right? Very much so. And it's an honor to work with these artists, you know, to have nurtured them for so long and for them to believe in what we are doing together. Mm. Um, and also to see it that, like, that's a very exciting part of what we do. I think, you know, we've also brought some new younger artists to the program recently. So we're very excited to be working with Felipe Bieza, who's currently on in, in the Venice Biennale and was selected by, you know, Cecilia Alemane there. And he's in The Milk of Dreams. Um, he graduated from Yale. A friend had told me I should do a studio visit with him in Yale, which we did virtually. And um, I have to say that that was very, very moving and important. And we feel, again, you know, honored and delighted that we represent him. He's been a great addition to the gallery. And as well, um, we took on Chioma Ebanama, who's a Nigerian-American artist who is living in Athens. But again, in curating the show with her, that was a real revelation in the space. The works were floating in the space, and she and I were very much having a kind of synergistic relationship to how the show got installed. Right, right, right. This queer aesthetic, then, I want to go back to that, which has been really, really important to me, especially with Wolfgang Tillman's work and discovering that at a really informative time in my life. And, and of course, for Rob, it, it makes me think, and you're saying like you're filling in, well, I'm saying I'm filling in the gaps now for these historical artists that, you know, you experienced a time in New York that is post-Stonewall pre-AIDS and for the queer movement for gay men, for gay people, that was an incredibly powerful, vivid, uh, inspiring time. And then we lost so many to AIDS and Mm. that gave art history the ability to overlook that. And now it feels like there's a reassessment of these artists that have been there. And and me working in New York at the moment, it it feels so like it happened yesterday and these artists were lost yesterday. But this queer mm-hmm. aesthetic that you've you've had, and you, I mean, you you created a show with Felix Gonzalez Torres in '94, like two years before he died at Camden Art Centre. How 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 has that been important for you? And, and was that, you know, bringing the queer voice in and the queer narrative into your program? Was that something that you you brought from the New York scene and experiencing, you know, that lifestyle alongside yourself? Then, I think very much so. Mm-hmm. I think that I along with hanging out in in London during the, you know, when I was just graduating from college, I went to New York as well. And so many of my friends and so many people who've nurtured me and people who um, have mentored me and, and been very, very illuminating for me to have known and to know are people who are in fact gay or people that are queer and aware of their queer history. And I think that the 
sensibility is something that's just really true to me. It's not something I thought I should adopt. It's just something that is very much part of how um, I feel like the literature I've read, the things that I was actually moved by, um, all these things kind of fitted together. And it's interesting that when I look at the gallery, I mean, we do show and represent Peter Hujar. We work with Paul P. We work with General Idea and A.A. Bronson. Um, we work with Tom Burr, Felipe Bieza. There's a variety of people that we work with who are very specific in their work um, addressing LGBTQ issues and talking about them at length and writing about them. General Idea are actually currently on in Ottawa at the National Gallery of Canada. And there's this huge catalog that A.A. Bronson has painstakingly put together um, that is really worth having. It's available through the gallery, but it's also available through them. I think that, you know, the Hoosier show that was on at the Morgan Library was so significant. And that was an interesting thing because Vincoletti, who's a, who's a great friend who lives in New York and is a writer for the New Yorker and writes, you know, in general and has been a curator. He curated a, a male show or a version of his great male show um, for the gallery. And, um, He's someone who also really was very instrumental in my getting a chance to work with the estate of um, Peter Hujar. So we feel very grateful to Vince for doing that. And every time I go to New York, I make a point of seeing him. He has the most uh, eccentric and special apartment in New York in the Lower East Side. It is absolutely filled with a treasure trove of catalogs and books. And his collection, which you should see, Russell, and you should see, Robert, is absolutely remarkable. It's um, a very, very idiosyncratic, but very, very tender collection of works that he's you know, put together over the years. And um, he's been a real champion to all of these things and a great inspiration to me. I, I really vividly remember the first Hoosier show I saw, which was actually at your space in Herald Street, and it was back in 2008, and I wasn't really familiar with the work. Was there a work in that group show as well, The Hidden, that you did, that had those amazing, like, Graham Derwood paintings that I was really into? And I think maybe... Yes, yes. There, I think that we had a self-portrait in that show. Yeah, exactly. So that was probably the first time I saw his work. And then mm -hmm. slowly over, you know, since 2008, like, if you think how well-known Hoosier's become, I literally saw it... In on the walls of your gallery first like what 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 does it feel like to sort of affect culture in that way because i remember talking to you about the idea of culture and how sometimes it can feel quite difficult because there's other galleries or other institutions that have so much money to like you know spend on marketing and all these things but i've always felt like you are always there first and actually you're always ahead of that curve like and you are affecting culture with the artists that you're showing mm. and you know give it a decade we'll all be hearing about the people that you show it just seems yeah. to be the case you've been described um, as a true pioneer of the east end by time out magazine as well so <laughs> it's official <laughs> Well, you know, it's very interesting because I was thinking about different women who inspired me um, in the early days of, you know, growing up um, and growing up in America, no less. And so it was um, very interesting that people like Georgia O'Keeffe, who really did have a pioneering spirit and, you know, did kind of um, create a romance for me of like how one would kind of... Uh, be quite singular in the world, like be able to emerge, have a vision, 
act on that and follow follow your heart, follow your vision. She was, you know, for many, not just me, a great icon. And the other that I was thinking about that I came across when I was at college was Frida Kahlo. And I think that, again, you know, there was a great deal of tragedy and pain in her life, but extraordinary beauty, extraordinary vision, very, very, very um, stick-to-itiveness, pioneering and kind of, yeah, just a, a one-off. And I think that finding people that you could look at who followed their their vision, who, who followed their heart, who actually had the courage to stand on their own and, and to see something that maybe other people couldn't see or wouldn't yet see, but might see if they were able to lead the way, was very, very inspiring for me. And I went with Oliver Evans to visit the Frida Kahlo uh, Casa Azul, her, her blue house and museum in Mexico City. Mm. It was very, very important to, to see that and to see her studio with Diego Rivera, but to also see that every single thing she collected, the way that she like lived in her environment, mm. all those things were very, very meaningful to me. Yeah, it was so precise. And actually, that reminds me of your office, because I always remember your office having shelves and like almost like vitrines that you could like on each shelf you would have different objects or even a crystals. Lot of crystals yeah, yeah crystals um, i said to know, rob yesterday i just bought yeah. some tangerine crystal now i ordered oh. it and that's arriving because i was reading an interview <laughs> that you did and i was like i need tangerine crystal in my life right now <laughs> hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I, I also vividly, vividly, vividly remember, it's such a weird anecdote, but I remember going into the bathroom for the first time at Herald Street and washing my hands and getting the towel out of the towel dispenser and sort of pausing for a minute, even though there was a huge queue and just looking at, at the actual like hardware, like the actual like sink and the, and the towel dispenser, because it was so other. And it was like this kind of fascinating way to create an, a, a different world. And then I later found out all, all of that kind of bathroom um, hardware was from a prison or something. Or some, well, there was some well, kind of myth well, about well, it. it. No, no, no. Indeed, indeed. I'll tell you. Fixtures and fittings are uh, another obsession and another aspect of one's uh, curation of spaces. Yes. So um, there's a sense that <laughs> I love that you noticed all of that. Um, those things, industrial design is, is something that you know, I'm very, very drawn to and very, very interested in. And then things that are almost functional, kind of institutional, 
kind of fixtures and fittings are things that I have always like researched for both like, you know, galleries and homes. But there was a kind of desire to have these institutional um, kind of fittings and, and fixtures. And I think that it was looking at spaces like the Dia and also looking at um, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, I remember just thinking about certain spaces that were usually in Switzerland, Germany, or the States that guided me towards the kinds of um, things that I was interested in ordering. And we often couldn't order them in Britain. So we would order them from abroad. And then we were so excited when they would arrive Mm -hmm. because our notice board that we have in the gallery comes from Germany. And when that arrived with the lettering that we put into it, it was all just part and parcel of um, this, this other world that, you know, I had looked at and I wanted to bring something of that back to where I was in the East End of London. And I think as a collector, it really gives you confidence in mm. you. Like there's something so visionary about the attention to detail. And I remember like every note you would write was so sort of thoughtfully, you know, when I bought work from you and you kindly mm. used to let me pay in installments, I've often quoted it because um, I couldn't really afford to buy, you know, everything that I wanted, but you were always so encouraging to me. And I don't know, I just felt like that precise focus and attention to detail and level of care meant that, you know, I also invested my attention to detail and focus on everything you were showing. It's really interesting. It's incredibly considered. So it makes you feel uh, safe or comfortable that, you know, at every point it's been thought about. It isn't, mm. nothing's a fluke. You know, it's mm. all there and it's all there to support the experience and, and to support the art. And it's a rich tapestry, isn't it? It's yeah. like a, it's a kind of sensory experience. It's, it's yes. really Well, going powerful. back to the comment about the 10-year-old girl who was asked to, you know, comment on one's, one's classmates' artworks, I, I think that, you know, when people talk about careerism or it being a career, if it's your life's work and it's your, like it's what you are meant to do, then all these details and all these things are all filled with meaning. So again, I thank you both for noticing them because it's so important to me and the fact that they meant something to you. And I was also guided by people like Ileana Sonnabend and Leo Castelli because yeah. I remember reading that Leo Castelli allowed collectors to buy things by installment and that this was something that he would let people do. And it was kind of like a practice that he engaged in and it seemed noble to me and very, very... Um, thoughtful understanding because if you really wanted this particular work of art and that was the way you could achieve it then the gallery would understand that as the way to help to do that and another thing that I think is also very close to you Russell and um, close to me too is that in progressing over these years and I realized that in um 2024, the gallery will be 40 years old. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. But you know, it's 38 years old now. And what I thought was that when I began the first two years thinking it was just a project space, and for the first 10 years, it really was just a project space, and it was not representing artists. And then even the next kind of 20 years was like learning on my feet, because I really was more of a... a, um, 
art historian artist as opposed to somebody who was thinking of it as a business so i think i was given the chance for it to evolve right over time so in each of these like 10 year segments different things have occurred and it was as late as 2004 that i actually called the gallery in my name so yes you said it it began as as interim art then it went to maureen Bailey interim that was the 20th anniversary right so that's 20 years Okay. It was, it was. And so one of the things I was thinking about, though, is that in all of that, it's something where it, it, it is like your life's work. It is not actually just something that you're doing, you know, and, and it would be described as your career. Yeah, 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 totally. And interestingly, uh, parallel to that, you were the person that taught me about guardianship. And I remember when I first came to your gallery, I was buying prints and I was buying the odd thing. And I think I felt like, you know, when you bought something, it was yours. And it was my conversations with you very early on that made me realize that actually, you know, we're not going to be here forever. And things we buy aren't really ours, you know, on a really, all we are as collectors is guardians. And when I heard um, a while ago that Anne Hardy was being considered to have work bought for the Tate, I remember thinking like, now's the right time to give the work that I'd bought from you to the Tate as well as a gift, because you'd got it in my head really early on, this idea of like, everything I was collecting is more about protecting it for the future generations. And hopefully that, you know, when I die, the collection can go to, you know, to local museums or across the country through contemporary art society or to the Tate. So when I heard that Anne was having that work, you know, acquired anyway, I was like, oh, this is a perfect time. And I I think you you were the one that instilled that in me. And I think that's really extraordinary for a, a gallerist you know, who's on the commercial side to sort of care that much. Being kind of aware of work's eventual home and where yeah. they, they they kind of go to um, and really being concerned that, you know, a wide variety of people will get to experience them and sort of value them and see them. But again, I now realise what, what I, was, I was getting at too about along with doing well and having success for the gallery artists and success for the gallery was putting back in so this idea of giving back um, is very, I think, very important, very topical right now. And one of the things I know that, Russell, you've been um, engaged with, and I have too, is the Magic Breakfast. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I've also, um, you know, thought a lot about the Felix Project. So the gallery being located in the East End of London, there's a lot that is needed in the area. There's a lot of um, need and, and, and poverty and, and issues. And I think that we were aware of that. And so from very, very early on, um, we you know, really, or I have really made a point to contribute to things that benefit people in our immediate location. Mm. I, I also remember seeing your name really early on um, at places like Chisholm and like even like bigger institutions like, um, you know, ICA or all the different ones. But I always remember thinking you were one of the only galleries back then. Like you, you seem to have been supporting other artists. Yeah, you've been a patron well. and supporter yeah, like all really the Open School East, yeah. uh, Studio Voltaire, obviously. We've met multiple times, White Columns in the States, Camden Arts mm. Centre, the Chisholm, ICA, South London Gallery, Tate, I know, that's Art what I mean. Angel, it's like Whitechapel. your generosity for other yes. art spaces and for new ideas is just extraordinary. Well, thank you. I think it's 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 very important. We just um, or I just decided um, as part of a legacy of things to kind of contribute to that I'd give a bit more to the Tate um, in terms of the conservation department, wow. because they are doing wonderful work to help 
artists, and when Anne Hardy's gift was made to the Tate recently, she was so impressed by that department and how they handled every little detail um, of her work. And I think that um, this is something where you know, her liquid landscape, which is currently now on, actually, in um, the British Art Show in Manchester, um, was handled so beautifully by them that it made me think perhaps this would be something to kind of do some additional funding for. So I think all these things are, especially during the pandemic, the Magic Breakfast and things like the Felix Project, so essential because these things, you know, when galleries are closed, institutions are closed, schools are closed, people still go hungry, things still are going on. And I think that um, there's a sense we have that people who have been able to um, achieve must look after everyone that they can, and that's the artists, and then it's the immediate like location. Totally. And I, I also think your choice in artist was really progressive and interesting in the sense of supporting artists with practices that it's harder to sell it wasn't like you were just showing regular you, you do show painters of course but it wasn't like you were showing artists that had easily accessible works that you could very simply buy and I, I think that's also quite an interesting sort of journey in, in, in your gallery's history. Well, I was thinking about that too with, with somebody like Gillian Waring. I saw her show with her um, and came to meet her in 1993 at City Racing in South London. Oh, yes. And I went to that show and she was making a lot of her sign work, which is iconic to mm. this day. And, you know, her I'm Desperate has been, you know, kind of Amazing. talked about endlessly. It's kind of extraordinary piece that she made. And then... Um, it turned out that we did our first show in 1994 and she revealed to me that it would be all video and I was delighted. Where again, if you have expectation for artists that they will do what you thought they have done, therefore they can't change. She went on to make extraordinary videos after that and the ones that we showed, I was thinking about this, which are in, in many museum collections, but we actually um, showed Dancing in Peckham at that time. Mm. And we also showed Confessal on video. So my interest in work is varied. And I also think if you have that belief, then that can be communicated and it somehow can be received in a way that um, we've been very, very grateful for. Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to mention that the Magic Breakfast is an incredible charity that's UK-based that feeds uh, kids breakfast uh, from low-income families who are not getting the meals they need so that they can sit and be educated and receive information because when you're hungry, you can't think. And it's an amazing charity that Maureen's attached to and I'm a patron for and they feed, I think now it's like 60,000 kids every morning up and down the country, which is just incredible and sad that it's needed, but amazing they're there. And then the Felix Project, which you also mentioned, is uh, a charity that collects food uh, that's fresh, but it cannot be sold still. And then they deliver this surplus food to people that need it and charities and schools so they can then and also food provide banks, yes. food banks. Yeah. Yes, It's such an important thing because food waste is just unacceptable beyond. Yeah. How important is spirituality to you, Maureen? Because, you know, we mentioned, we touched on the crystals and the tangerine quartz, which is en route to me to change my <laughs> life. But it feels like there is, I, I've heard you mention 
like the cosmic law of dharma and personal behavior virtues and the way you know cosmology and spirituality these feel like things that as well as considering the artists you work with and the curation and the attention to detail in the space it feels like there's a higher order that you also lean into and look to for inspiration well i think that if you think about um you know, the people who have made art and what art is and even the early evolution of art, right? And how, um, going back to the ancients, what people were thinking of, um, there's a communication of um, information and there have been many different visionaries who've, you know, in a shamanic way have communicated to people um, about the world, trying to understand the cosmos. So I think that from early on, I was doing parallel readings with things that were contemporary, with things that were cosmological, things that were uh, spiritual. And sometimes, I guess, when you are trying to find your way and you could feel lost or you could feel concern, you might need that for guidance. And it's like, again, kind of finding some meaning in a higher power, something that, you know, could guide you. Um, I think it's very interesting in our moment now that, you know, people are looking at Helma af Klint mm -hmm. and people are looking at Hildegard Bingen again and things, certain discoveries are being made. But somehow, all the way along, I guess the goddess thing and the sense of meaning coming from these things um, has spoken to me. Mm -hmm. And then I've sought to find out more about those things. So I've done quite a bit of reading and also, yeah, talking to, to people who I feel have wisdom who can guide me. I want to also touch, but it's incredible. I mean, it is, and you're right. I did the first things you do realize is these vitrines with the crystals in your office when we used to go in and on top of books that I was like, what, what is that doing? That's giving you some, some great energy. I want some of that. But um, I want to talk about women's contributions to contemporary art and especially women uh, gallery directors and contemporary art women run spaces you know you've got yourself who's a complete icon but there's so many names that spring up like barbara gladstone and tori miro who again is another east london gallery space or open the space there marion goodman paula cooper sadie coles kate mcgarry julia payton jones who now is a director at today's ropac gallery but run the serpentine there's been incredible trailblazing Women. And Ivana, of course, Ivana Blazwick. Yeah, White of Chapel, the Whitechapel. Well. You know, yeah. they've, they've, these trailblazing women have been there, our historical Peggy Guggenheim, you know, that have, have made incredible impacts and changed the narrative of art and had these incredibly successful gallery spaces and, and rosters of artists that have become art historical. Why do you think that is, not saying undermining the women can't do it, but why do you think there has been such an affinity for women to run gallery spaces at to such a successful rate? I think it's historical that women were given that chance very early on. And I think that looking back with contemporary art and with modern art, there was a kind of opening that occurred and I think people like Gertrude Stein, the collector, who was kind of not necessarily correct collecting um, women, 
but was showing art and thinking about art and kind of displaying art in her home. And then Peggy Guggenheim, as you mentioned, I think that some of the forerunners who were doing some of the first work were able to collect as well as, as display art. And it wasn't questioned somehow. So maybe they were not rivaling the male artists and they were actually able to be enablers. And I think that there's a sort of um, a dual discussion because women who've been able to show art and to great effect and actually been able to further their galleries and further their artists um, didn't question historically whether that was possible. Whereas I think women artists have had a different trajectory mm. and they've really had to kind of battle with a sense of the patriarchy and a sort of sense of being overshadowed at times, not rightly and unfairly within that. But I think that there was um, a very, very rich history of women who were able to run spaces, both public and private. And I remember when I was again getting started and still a student at Sarah Lawrence, you know, I was devouring books about, you know, Peggy Guggenheim. I think even the fact that she was a little bit wayward <laughs> made her intriguing. Love, you know, the fact that she was, stories, know, yeah. she was she was really, you know, not necessarily an angel. No. But she was very adventurous. And even this recent visit to Venice, which I, I made because of Felipe Bieza being in the Biennale and being so proud of him and so excited to go. I always make a pilgrimage to her palazzo. We've actually I've done always... that together a number of yes, times. Yes, we have. I do exactly the same. Well, you kindly <laughs> took me to one of the real like previews once, I remember. Oh, so We lovely. went to a really special breakfast. We yeah. did, we did. And I, what I think is that visiting there, and I'm glad I go all the way back to having visited in 1985, yeah. I think was my first time seeing it. <laughs> Was which is you know rather late actually. I wish it was earlier, but somehow, I remember really looking at the Calder bedstead and looking at the Eve Tangy earrings mm. and looking at all the furniture there and the way that she arranged things very very precisely, and I was so drawn to it and very 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 um, inspired by it. And so it's interesting that then just this recent visit there was an incredible exhibition about surrealism women and magic in the you know in in the museum space that is there and it was fabulous looking at Leonora Carrington and looking at um, Leonora Fini, and looking at also Remedios Varos, who is a great artist, who's a Mexican artist that I love, who is absolutely spiritual in what she creates. And she's someone, too, that Felipe Bieza is very fond of. And I think that's the other thing. With the gallery artists, there's often a discussion that we have about art in general and what we love common with each other. And um, I often love looking at exhibitions with artists. It's really fantastic. Wolfgang Tillmans was the person who took me to see um, Ali Fear Eats the Soul. And I was absolutely drawn to that. And it's become one of my favorite films of all time. But I, again, feel so grateful that he said, we must go see this. And we went to see mm. it together. Mm. Well, they show, you, they show you the world artists. I think that's why we're all so drawn to them because they they open up areas of the world we haven't considered possibly exploring before and that's what it's about but you mentioned Gertrude Stein uh, earlier on and a quote that she had is it takes talent 
to recognize genius, which I think relates to you imperfectly, Maureen. I think it, it is you, you have seem to have had this talent and continue to have this talent to recognize absolute genius when it comes to art. And that's an incredible uh, energy to be around and to know. And it's, it's the biggest honor to be talking to you today. Yeah, and I know that so many um, of my like um, colleagues and uh, contemporaries, even just from my generation, like are so inspired and pretty much doing what they're doing because of you. Like yeah. the example you've set to all of us to be brave, to be bold, to be yourself as well, I think. And, you know, not every gallery has to be the same. It's about us all sharing all the different facets, like all the different rooms of art. And I, 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 I can't thank you enough for the contribution you've made to culture and to contemporary art. Like it's just like there, there's no one else like you. It's extraordinary. Oh, thank you both so much. It's really heartbreaking to hear that. And um, at in a the good same way, time, I hope. Yeah, in, in, in a good way. Yeah, and yeah. no, and um, like I say, we all are on this earth to try and leave it in a better condition than we found it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to get to our final questions with you now, but before that, as well as collecting art, and I know that you have a collection yourself, you also collect gloves. Uh, you seem to have acquired a massive collection of gloves. How many gloves are we up to now? And when was the last time you got a pair? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those ones. Um, there's a certain surrealism to collecting gloves. And there are certain people who make them who are artists in my mind. Um, and so I did actually um, collect something from Maison Fabre recently that um, I had gotten from their shop in Paris, which I go to, they are very intriguing because they have on them printed as if tattooed on your fingers, love and hate. And uh, they're just the most wonderful gloves. I can't wait to wear them. <laughs> oh God, the gloves need to show themselves. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, trade. So the questions we ask every guest, the first one is if you could do an art heist, and I know that you have a great collection and you have the Reverend Howard Finster that you live with, amazing uh, outlier artist. If you could have any work of art in the world to yourself to live with, what would it be and why? Um, that's a very interesting one. Probably I would collect the Frida Kahlo portrait that she made of herself with Diego Rivera sort of in her forehead i don't oh, know its yes. title yeah, but yeah, i yeah. do think that that's a very significant and very haunting picture yeah the one the one where he's like on on her mind yes <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, yeah. constantly oh, wow. who who do you live with like collector wisely i did just mention howard finster but i'm sure i saw years ago a katharina fritch uh, sculpture uh, of I, like, have, I have yeah. one of her editions of, of yes her Madonna um, yeah, yeah, editions yeah. which I, I I do love that I have of course I have works by the gallery artists mm -hmm. um, there's a number of pieces by many of them that I collect um, it's a very idiosyncratic collection but it somehow is um, meaningful to me and one of the things I make a point of doing is I often collect things from my fellow gallerists and colleagues. And so I've actually bought work from, you know, Sadie Coles. Um, I've bought work from Kate McGarry. Um, I've bought work from Herald Street Gallery. 
I bought work from Mother's Tang Station, the Approach Gallery, a variety of different places, and I own counter editions. Um, and I like that I have um, those works, and they're specific artists that I don't represent, but I admire in other people's programs. Um, I looked up the Frida Kahlo images. So there are two paintings that I found. One is Diego and I, which is an earlier work, I think, from 1940s. And then another one from the earlier 1940s, which is Diego on my mind. I think maybe that's the one. It's Diego on my mind, yeah. Yeah, self-portrait. Well, now yeah. I'll know what to pick up in the highest. <laughs> Can you just direct me to... Uh, where I is that hanging, so please? <laughs> yes. The other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Well, this is a bit predictable, and I'm slightly embarrassed by saying black, but it's black. Black, yeah. For everyone who, who might not have met you or doesn't know you, black is a colour that I do associate a lot with you because you often wear black. Your hair is also the most beautiful black colour. And um, yeah, can you explain why you love black so much? Well, I think it has a depth to it. And I really think that I like it almost in the way that the Japanese talk about black as being um, a kind of elegant color, a color that's not only um, kind of, it, it has like a lot of spiritual meaning and kind of connectedness to, you know, the universe in certain ways. Um, when I wear it and when I actually think of it, um, it's in textures. So it's like about the shadow and I'm very interested in the concept of the shadow. That's another thing I do a lot of reading about. Mm. And I think that black evokes the shadow. So when I did my show called The Hidden, it's also thinking a lot about the shadow. Marina De Luna is what Wolfgang Tillmans has named you, which also roughly translates as dark-haired one of the moon. Indeed, indeed. And I um, do have a kind of fascination with the moon. I'm very interested in the idea of moon goddesses and the way that the moon guides us. So a lot of things that have been um, kind of attributed to the moon, the moon, you know, guides the tides, is, dealt, is dealing with things to do with the crops. It's to deal with, you know, just the way that the universe kind of evolves and, and kind of um, revolves in the world. And so, yeah, I think that the moon, blackness, and somehow all that is lunar is fascinating to me. Amazing. Yeah, and it's also the light, isn't it? It's not just the darkness. It's like... Yes, moonlight. Moonlight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the oh. best advice you've ever received when it comes to your career and art practice, I guess? Well, I'm going to mention somebody that I miss very much and who did actually give me some advice that meant a great deal to me. In 1991, and I'm thinking about this because of recessions and things like that, and I sort of had to rethink and restart my gallery in 1992 and 93. Kind of that 10-year period had led to a move that hadn't gone well and I needed to kind of think about the future. And Karsten Schubert came to see mm. me and I said, in a very histrionic and theatrical way, it's over, it's absolutely over. And he said, it isn't over, you must continue. Oh. I hung out with Karsten in Sitches one night, Karsten Schubert, me, Michael Craig Martin, and we ended mm. up at a drag bar. And this was, <laughs> this was about 10 years as, ago. As you would. As, as you would. would. And it was one of the best nights. And I always found Carsten to be 
uh, awesome. incredibly generous. And whenever I turned up in his space, he would be there and be like, right, and tell him, talk me through everything. And, you know, as a young collector feeling, as we all do and still continue to do at times, intimidated by everything, like yourself, he was uh, a welcoming character who you could, you know, gravitate towards and feel safe. Yes. Well, I think that he touched many and he um, is someone who was very encouraging to me. And I do appreciate that and think about him quite a bit now that he's gone. Absolutely. You know, there's another fact about you, which is that you showed Fishley and Vice really early on mm. in your space, didn't you, in London? I did. I did. I think that one of the um, things about the early first 10 years and the, the, the project space aspect of what I was doing um, was that I look back at that and think these were not people that I was going to represent or get to represent or even think at the time was you know possible. But I did get to show them. They did come over to London. They wandered through Broadway Market and bought things for sandwiches and came back to the little house with them. Um, I got to show Kristen Markley. I got mm. to show Charlie Ray. I got to show Mike Kelly. Mm. Um, there were a variety of different shows. I showed Richard Deacon actually with Listen Gallery's Blessing. There were a number of things. Um, there were group shows that had, you know, Klaus Oldenburg's Ray Guns in. And um, it, was, it was very exciting in those early days because it wasn't about me representing. It was more curating and thinking and getting to work with artists that I really wanted to do projects with. And the things that they did with Fishley Vice, they showed in my space. And then they also showed something at the ICA and spoke with Richard Wentworth about um, De Laufterdinger, their film that they had shown. Mm. Um, and they actually talked about making do and getting by and created a friendship with him that went on for years and continues even with, you know, David Weiss no longer being with us to this day with mm. Peter Fishley. So this and, you know, Parquet and all these things that were happening, artists that I worked with getting into Parquet as a magazine, making editions with Parquet, leading to the editions that they then made with, you know, other people, um, counter editions, uh, very especially, and then things for the Serpentine. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it. There's been quite a trajectory, and I do love collaborating with public space. Mm. So I like that when the artists show with us, I also like that we do have a role to play when they show with public space. And I'm very encouraging of that. I feel like that's a very important way of expanding their practice and expanding what is known about them. It's also so much part of your DNA because you curated exhibitions for a long time in other spaces, like mm. with the Henry Moore Sculpture Trust, that amazing show, The Cauldron, which has the most beautiful orange um, hardback catalogue. And I remember when I first met you going back into the archives of all your earlier shows and trying to like almost like uh, find out all the details about all the shows you'd done. Um, and I learned about like Angela Bullock and Georgina Starr and Gillian Waring and like Steve Pippin, you know, and C Christine Borland just from that show. It's interesting, too, because Roger Malbert, when the, the Hayward Touring Exhibitions asked me to do a show, again, in that 
kind of liminal period, the period of like 92 to 94, um, I did my wall-to-wall show that toured. And um, that has a wonderful catalog too. And he was very instrumental in saying, why don't you? And I thought, rather than do something that was all about objects, again, my conceptual side came out. And I thought, people who work directly on the wall, like people like the great Lawrence Wiener, who came over to the Serpentine and actually did his wall work himself with with one assistant. It was really incredible. Luther Baumgarten came, Barbara Kruger participated in that. There were some fabulous things that happened. And many, many, many great artists did these wall works that then were included in the catalog together with artist pages. So... All these things um, then informed like how I would go on to continue with the gallery. But I think having that opportunity that I really still to this day thank Roger for um, mm. was, was very, very important. And to have been recognized because of my project space status as mm. being able to do that, not being viewed entirely as a dealer um, or only a gallerist was a very great thing about maybe things being less defined at those times. Amazing. Mm. What is your greatest achievement then, Maureen? Because, you know, we, we discussed earlier, upcoming, we have Wolfgang Tillmans, who's going to have a major survey show at MoMA New York, which then travels to MoMA San Francisco, which is a huge moment for any artist. That's like art history cemented pinnacle. You know, th- these are experiences that you're having with the artists that you've represented all this time. What are your greatest achievements and how do you stay um, ambitious to this to this level? Well, I think it's again, it's 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 the engagement being um, true and everything being um, mainly about the artists. I mean, it's it's what they are able to do. And then you act as an enabler to assist. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very, um, one has a lot of gratitude to be able to be on that path with them Mm. for such a, such a long time. And, um, I do think that this is a very particular benchmark here. Absolutely. When are you writing the book? (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, that would be so good. Maybe it'll just be a, a, a picture book. (laughs) <laughs> that'd that still be great that'd still be great well this has just been incredible I'm going to be seeing you soon because I'm out here filming at the minute in New York so I will be seeing you for Wolfgang's big you know moment here which is yes, uh, you know very exciting very yeah. very exciting and and people can check out shows uh, your space in East London at Three Colts Lane you have as we said Marina de Luna which is in Hove uh, you, there's a new studio M that opened at the Rochelle School and Canteen, which is off Arnold Circus in East London, which you opened in October 2020, which is another um, uh, invite, invite well, not invite only, but you can book online to go and see shows there. Well, you know, you can actually, it's open Wednesday through Sunday. I think okay. that was during the pandemic period, but it's open Wednesday through Sunday and it's open 11 to 6. And so if you show up, you do have to ring a buzzer, but you can <laughs> of be course, let in. Yes. You can be let in. And um, no, and I must say that Studio M and being in Rochelle and actually in Rochelle School and near to the beloved Rochelle Canteen, um, which is just extraordinary, has been a very great addition to our little constellation of spaces. And um, I think all of this is um, actually adding to what you're talking about. What keeps you alive? What keeps you going? What keeps you vital is 
change and growth. That's amazing. Um, and for everyone listening, you can go to maureenpaley.com. And what I recommend you do is go to the exhibitions tab and then obviously look at what's on right now, but also look at what's on in the past tab. And you can go all the way back, I think, to like the early 90s, maybe like 93. And you can, it's such a rich resource of all the exhibitions Maureen has kind of curated and overseen and discovered and championed. So many different artists who over the years have just really changed art you know for the better like james welling love james welling i think we could talk forever maureen but i think what's maureen gallus i love maureen i think we we love maureen (laughs) gallus but i think what's great is that people are going to hopefully listen to this episode and go and check out the spaces and meet you and engage with you and have the experiences that we had when we first went into the art world and discovered it and became our biggest passion via you uh, you are, you know, at being an enabler can have negative connotations sometimes, but with you being an enabler is magical. And thank yeah. you so much for doing that. And are you on Instagram, Maureen? I am indeed, yes. So um, the gallery has an Instagram account and it's Maureen Paley and you can look that up. Amazing. So you can follow Maureen there and we'll also be posting images to TalkArt. And uh, looking forward to seeing you very soon. Yeah, I see and you actually, very I've soon. always loved going to your dinners, Maureen. That's another thing you do very well. Is yes, hosting. at St. John, <laughs> at St. John, which has been a stalwart. Yes, you're very loyal and at to Bistro all Tech. Back yeah. in the day, we used to go to Bistro Tech a lot. Yes, I used to love and now yeah. we're using Rochelle Canteen quite a bit. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on, and we see you soon, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye, we'll Maureen. be back very soon. Okay. Bye, Maureen. Bye, Russell. Bye, Bye. Robert. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.